Okay, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And to set it in its context, we're early on, obviously, in the book of Acts. But chapter 1, that scene we saw there at the very beginning of the book that sets the stage for the whole book, promised the apostles that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And in that context, they then spend the next 10 days in Jerusalem waiting and praying and seeking the Lord. And somewhere during that week and a half, Peter stands up with the apostles and then the other followers of Jesus who are gathered around and recognizes that they need to replace Judas as the now missing apostle so that they have a full 12 number of apostles to be really the foundation of Messiah's new kingdom. And they're forming themselves sort of like a new Israel. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Well, now there's 12 apostles through which and under which the uh, Messiah is going to form his kingdom. And so they set out to choose a new apostle who's going to be a witness with them of the resurrection. And that new apostle is Matthias. And so you get now 12 apostles in Jerusalem and waiting on God's promise to pour out the Spirit. It's that that really sets the stage for Acts chapter 2. And so the dominant question we get in Acts chapter 2, really the whole chapter, we're going to take it in a couple chunks, but in Acts chapter 2, the dominant question is, what happens when the Holy Spirit arrives? That's what we get here in Acts chapter 2. So chapter 2, 1 through 13, is the initial statement of that. And then in the second half of the chapter, we get Peter standing up and explaining what, what what's going on. And then we get the result with regards to the people in the crowd and the forming really of the very first church of Jesus followers there in Jerusalem. So what happens when the spirit arrives? Well, here's what happens. Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. A couple things to note is the first, obviously, is the day of Pentecost. What's the day of Pentecost? Well, this refers to a Jewish feast uh, that occurred beginning of June. And it's really a Greek name for a Jewish feast. Uh, The Greek word Pentecost means the 50th part of a thing. And once the Greek language sort of took over the Mediterranean world and became the common language, this particular Jewish feast that goes by several names in the Old Testament became known as Pentecost. And the reason it's the 50th part of a thing is it came 50 days after Passover. So Jesus was crucified during Passover. We're now 50 days since then. He spent 40 days after his resurrection appearing to the apostles. So we're like nine, 10 days, depending on exactly how we count things, nine or 10 days after his uh, the end of his appearances. And the apostles now have been waiting in Jerusalem for this moment. And so we get Pentecost. In the Old Testament, this feast is called the Feast of Weeks because there were seven weeks between it and between Passover and it. It's uh, also in the Old Testament called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23 because it occurred uh, during one of the key harvest periods for the Jewish calendar. 
And uh, it's also called the Feast of First Fruits in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23, because this was what was offered to God. The first fruits of their harvest were offered to God as a thank offering to thank him for his bounty in providing for them. So that's this feast. So those names in the Old Testament are referring to the same feast that's called Pentecost here. So the day of Pentecost. It's also important to note about Pentecost that it's it's more than likely, I mean, there's no really reason to think otherwise, that this is a Sunday. Uh, the reason for that is because um, it came 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover. And so 50 days after any Saturday is a Sunday. Uh, and thus we have Sunday. So this is probably a Sunday here, the day of Pentecost. So that's appropriate in view of the fact that uh, it, it takes a little bit for the Jews to begin to shift from Sabbath as the key day of worship, Saturday, to Sunday. Well, now you have a couple major events that motivate that shift. First, Jesus' resurrection on Sunday. So they're going to celebrate the resurrection day, Lord's Day on Sunday. And the giving of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit and marking the beginning of the new era happens on a Sunday. Hence the reason Sunday worship has become central in the church. And the third feature that's really important about Pentecost is this, that Pentecost, by the time of the first century, had moved just from being a harvest celebration, a Thanksgiving celebration, to also being a celebration of uh, the Old Covenant and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. In fact, um, one Jewish writing, Jubilees, says that the Feast of Weeks was interpreted as a renewal ceremony of the covenant. It was an opportunity to recommit and renew the giving of the law and their devotion to the law. And so this Pentecost celebration now becomes this moment where it's a renewal ceremony that is like the great renewal, the renewal of all renewals when God pours out his spirit and the messianic era begins full force with the coming of God's very own spirit. As one commentator says, this is a perfect opportunity to, to fulfill the giving of the law with the giving of the spirit, right? Like the spirit is now going to be the thing that really governs and guides God's people in their walk with God. So when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. couple things that are unclear and we have to sort out there is who's the they? Not totally clear. Uh, it could be the 120 that were mentioned uh, at the beginning as a parenthetical note in Peter's speech at the end of chapter one. It's possible. I tend to think, however, where we, they means the apostles. And the reason I think that is because uh, all throughout chapter 1, the apostles have been the primary focus. N not the only focus, just the primary focus. We get some other people mentioned for sure, but Luke has chosen to emphasize the promise of the Spirit to the apostles in chapter 1. They are going to be witnesses. At the end of chapter 1, we are replacing uh, a missing apostle, and Matthias is numbered with the 11. And that's really the way chapter 1 ends, is with a specific reference to the 11 apostles and Matthias being added to them. And so that's really like the last antecedent for uh, this word, they. In fact, just remember, in the original writing, there is no chapter break. Those were added much later. And so they most naturally would refer to the apostles. And when you look to the preceding, the forward-looking context, the focus of chapter 2 is on 
the apostles. Peter takes his stand with the 11. Those who are speaking in chapter 2 are uh, all Galileans, i.e. the apostles, right? Um, and so it seems like the, the focus of chapters 1 and 2 is on the apostles as the spokesmen and the ones to whom this promise was initially given. That's just the way Luke has told the story. It's not that it's limited to that. In fact, the end of chapter 2 will emphasize that the promise of the Spirit is for all people, young, old, men, women, everybody. But the way Luke has told the story is he's focused the story on these snapshots from the apostles. And so I tend to think the they there in 2.1 refers to the apostles. Now, what's really important is this to remember about what happens here in Acts chapter 2 is that this event is unique. We're going to get see the Spirit poured out in a unique way with unique, you know, audiovisual phenomena, right? Uh, this is going to be a unique event, and there's no indication in this story that um, it's something normal or typical. In fact, this event is so unique that even Peter couldn't forget it. And 10 years later, when the same sort of thing happened to Cornelius and some Gentiles in Acts chapters 10 and 11, Peter jumps over 10 years of church history and he jumps back to this event to compare what happens to Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts 10 to what happened to him and the apostles at the beginning. And so this event is a unique event that marks a major moment and a major forward movement in the purposes and the plans of God for his people. The other question then is, well, where are they? They, I think the apostles, we're all together in one place. Uh, and so where are they at? What's this place? Well, verse 2 mentions the word house. At least it's translated that way. And the question is, well, where are they? Where is this one place? And it could be a house, perhaps the upper room where that was mentioned in chapter 1. Or it could be the temple. And it's just not 100% clear which place we're talking about. If you... If you think it's the house, then what you have to picture as the story unfolds is, is thousands and thousands of people packing into the streets of uh, Jerusalem to listen to the apostles and then ultimately to Peter uh, speaking of the mighty things of God and explaining what all this means. You have to have thousands, enough thousands of people that a percentage of them could get baptized and that percentage could equal 3,000. So I don't know how many thousand we would have to be looking at, but I'm guessing not 100% became followers of Jesus from this moment since some are already mocking here right from the get-go. And so you're, you're picturing thousands upon thousands of people packed into these streets and somehow being able to hear it if you picture the house. If it's the temple, some have suggested maybe like the, the stairwell leading up into the temple or maybe, you know, in... Uh, the courtyards of the temple, because we know the early church regularly met in Solomon's porch. We'll see that here in a couple chapters in Acts. And so not totally clear where they're at. I tend to think personally, picture the scene happening in the temple courtyard, maybe on the, the southern steps, but more likely to me in the temple courtyard. Uh, I think that's where we're at because 
Uh, it makes sense. It's the it's a feast day. It's a day of celebration, right? The temple, the temple has you would obviously have thousands upon thousands of people in there for the feast. It, it's easier for you to envision how you get all these people packed into this area to listen to this. Uh, and so I tend to think we're in the temple, and uh, and that makes the most sense of the scene. If that's the case, how do we understand the word house in verse two? Well, the word house is actually a generic word that can mean house, can mean building, and it's actually sometimes used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, for the temple. Um, we actually see that in Acts chapter 7, verse 47, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 4, it's referred to as the house, and it's the same word in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so it's not impossible that we're talking about the whole house, meaning the whole building, the whole house of God, the whole temple where they were sitting. But it's not totally clear. Here's what is clear. It's Pentecost. It's Sunday, 50 days after Passover. They've been praying and waiting for what Jesus told them God was going to do in a few days, that the Spirit would be poured out. And that's what happens. And so when the Spirit finally arrives, what happens? Well, look at verse 2. And suddenly... A noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. So a massive, loud rushing of wind, right, came from heaven and filled the whole place where they were sitting. The house, uh, you know, the upper room or the temple area, wherever it was, these people are gathered and seated around, right, praying perhaps or something like that. And there's this sound like this massive, violent, rushing wind. And so that fills the whole place. And then, verse 3, and uh, tongues that looked like fire appeared to them. I don't quite know how to picture that. I've seen, you know, con concept art in various, like, picture Bibles where it looks like each of the apostles looked like little candles with like a little flame above their head. Maybe. I have no idea quite how to picture this, but somehow... Um, there, there was some manifestation of fire in some sense, which is apropos because fire is consistently used in the scriptures as uh, a portrayal of the presence of God. It's also used as a portrayal of the, the refining and purifying work of God. So that's appropriate. And so you have this sound like wind. You have, in some sense, a manifestation of fire that appeared to them, distributing themselves, like dividing. This fire appears and divides themselves uh, and, and rested on each one of them. That's where you get the candle image, right? Like a little flame on each. I mean, how do we picture that? Not totally sure. Um, but in some sense, they were all lit up with this flame, this fire, this renewing and, and uh, purifying, uh, cleansing presence of God in this uh, moment. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit now arrives. He's poured out just as Jesus said and God had promised uh, that in the messianic era, the spirit would come. Well, the big day is here and the spirit is poured out and they're all filled with God's very own spirit. Now, this isn't the place to, to spend too much time talking about the spirit in relationship to God the Father and God the Son. Uh, I will add some material on that to the study hub. Um, and in my online course on... Uh, core beliefs. I have a whole session on the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and some of that sort of stuff. But let me just say this. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit 
is in New Testament theology. He is one member of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. That is uh, who God is. God is one God in three persons. Um, and the Spirit, therefore, is the same kind of person as Jesus is. We can picture Jesus because, right, he, he took on flesh. We could see him. We, we hear him interact. That's who the Holy Spirit is. The Spirit has the same nature, the same character, uh, the same virtues that Jesus has and that God the Father has. Well, this person known as the Holy Spirit fills each of the apostles here and the effect in this moment for this day, on the day of Pentecost, at this point in time, the effect of his coming was that they began to speak, with this translation, with different tongues as the Holy Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Uh, just to clarify, when we say speak in different tongues, we're talking different foreign languages. That's what different tongues mean. That becomes very clear in the way the story unfolds here in this chapter. So, Immediately as they're filled with the Spirit, he prompts them to speak and prompts them to speak with languages, foreign languages, that they didn't learn, that they have not known. That's the surprising thing about this. And interestingly, one of the things that is pretty consistent in both Luke and Acts seems to be the way Luke uses this description is that when people are filled with the Spirit, they speak. And they speak of the mighty things of God. They speak of God's salvation. They speak of God's good work. And so it seems to be one of the ways Luke uses this idea of being filled with the Spirit, that when people are filled with the Spirit, they speak. And that's the case here. The apostles here are filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they're speaking. And we're going to learn that they're speaking of the mighty things of God, but they're speaking in a variety of unlearned foreign languages. And Luke is going to go on here and make that very clear. Look what happens in verse 5. Now, there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Uh, maybe these were Jewish pilgrims who were there for the, the Passover and Pentecost celebration, right? there. So they've been there now for six, seven weeks, eight weeks, right? We're not sure. Maybe it's Jews from the diaspora, the scattering of Jews throughout the Mediterranean world who have, uh, who have come back to finish out their lives in Jerusalem, which was very common. It was a goal of many Jews living in the cities scattered throughout uh, the greater Greco-Roman world to come back to Jerusalem for their end of days so they could be buried in Jerusalem, which sort of in popular thinking kind of gave them first dibs on the resurrection. And so a lot of Jews would move back to Jerusalem at the end of their life. Either way, these are Jews from various parts of the, the Mediterranean world and from the Roman Empire that now are in Jerusalem, some of which are probably uh, pilgrims for the celebration who are going to go back home like little seeds in the wind of the gospel, which is, I think, important and fascinating for the way this story unfolds. But they're there. And they're there, it says, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, Perhaps the sound of the rushing wind, I tend to think that's what's being referred to because it's so loud and so violent and it's going to get their attention. Um, maybe that's what it was. Maybe they heard the sound of people speaking in various languages. Um, either one, when the sound occurred, the crowd came together. So a, a large crowd begins to gather around the apostles and they were bewildered 
because each one of them in this crowd was hearing them, the apostles, speak in his own language. That makes it um, totally clear that we're talking about learned, unlearned foreign languages, languages that these, these uh, Galilean apostles should not know, but they do know. And so each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? In other words, to, to our native tongue, to the tongue of the region in which we were born and grew up, right? And whatever that was. And then Luke lists off all these places where people are from. And it's a huge section of the Middle Eastern world. Look at these places. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. Uh, those are people kind of to the the northeast of Jerusalem, like out there in what is now sort of modern day Iran and parts like that. Residents of Mesopotamia, which would be a little bit south of all that. So to the southeast or due east of Jerusalem, right? Uh, maybe in what is now modern day Iraq, Judea, which is the region right around Jerusalem, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Those are all regions in what is now modern-day Turkey, Egypt, and Libya, and Cyrene, right? Like now North Africa. Like we're covering the whole span of the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world. Uh, we get visitors from Rome all the way to the far west, about 1,400 miles away. Rome is about that far from Jerusalem. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So you have, notice that, Jews and proselytes. A proselyte was a convert to Judaism who had been circumcised and kept the law of Moses. And so you have visitors, people who have, are visiting Jerusalem from Rome who are Jews and even those who were Gentiles but have converted to Judaism. You have Cretans, uh, the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, and Arabs. Arab is the region sort of uh, like Damascus, east of Damascus, and all of that, the Nabataeans in the first century. It says, from all this vast array of places, from all over the Middle East, these people are gathered there and they say, we hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty deeds of God. So here's the apostles filled with the spirit. They begin to speak of God's mighty deeds. And when they speak, all these people from all these different places are hearing them in the native language of those regions. And they're shocked and they're amazed. They're bewildered. In fact, verse 12, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? And so some of those people in the crowd are like, man, what does this mean? And they're curious, like, this is unusual. This is amazing. I'm not sure what this means. And they want to know more. But others, in contrast, were jeering and saying, ah, oh, they're just full of sweet wine. They're just discounting them and dismissing them, saying, look, they've been, they've been drinking too much wine, right? They're drunk, getting drunk early in the morning on sweet wine. So you have two reactions from this crowd. Some, I'm curious. I want to know more. Um, tell me more. What does this mean? And some who just want to dismiss it and discount it and just say, ah, this is just pure nonsense and craziness.
Now, before we go any further in the story, let's just pause right here, offer a little bit of reflection, even though chapter two really is all one big snapshot. It's like scene two of act one of the book of Acts, right? And it's all it all goes together. But uh, for the sake of time, we're going to pause here and just wrap up this section before we get the rest. And here's the reflection I want us to think about, and that is simply the coming of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is all about the arrival of the Spirit. And Peter's going to go on in our next recording, and he's going to offer, in some regards, a sermon explaining the coming of the Spirit and how it points to Jesus as Messiah. And so this is all the centerpiece of this snapshot. And what that reminds us is, in this moment, on this day, the day of Pentecost, when God pours out his Spirit, is we've moved to a new stage in salvation history. The, the, the timetable of God's purposes and plans has moved forward. And Peter's actually going to quote an Old Testament passage when he explains it and use the phrase, the last days, i.e. the last stage of God's purposes and plans before he finishes the restoration of all things. And so we've entered into a new stage and the, the messianic era has now begun. The age of King Jesus is inaugurated, and we've entered into what uh, I like to refer to as the overlap of the ages. You still have the old age, the age of the flesh, the age of the old order, the age of the world that's passing away still remains, but the age of the life to come, new creation, has broken into the present evil age, to steal a phrase from the Apostle Paul, and those two ages now overlap in the present time. One age is marked by the fallen weakness of humanity. It's the flesh. The other age is marked by the renewal and the presence and the power of the Spirit. It's the life of the age to come. I did a whole series of podcasts on this overlap on my Bible and Life podcast. And if you want to know more, you can check that out where I talk about the overlap of the ages. But the thing for us to know at this point in our study of Acts is that the Messianic age, the age of the Messiah, is the age of the Spirit. And God's people are now renewed and reborn and given new power and new ability to live the way God calls us to live, to live out the new humanity. They're given new power to do that by the presence of God's very own Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, who's poured out for the first time on the day of Pentecost. <laughs>